0: Now, I want to um, take you into the second chapter of the book of Acts today, and it was really kind of a, a standalone message that in some ways connects with the themes that we were considering last week when we looked at Psalm 133 on unity, but I want to take that further and consider something more of what the life of God in the, in the, in the people of God looks like. For some of you, this will come as a reminder. We easily easily lose our fervor for um, the church and for the work of God and what he's seeking to accomplish our vision for it but for others of you I think this will come as something new and fresh perhaps your experience of church to this date has not been as it ought to be and I want to cast before you a kind of picture or a vision of what Christ wants to do among his people and I trust that it's going to be effective in shaping our minds our imaginations and our prayers I want to read to you just a few verses from the beginning of Acts chapter 2, and then I'm going to read to you from the end of Acts chapter 2. So we'll just read the start. And by way of context, of course, this is a matter of weeks after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only Christians are those, that small group that had gathered in Jerusalem to wait and to pray for the Holy Spirit to fall upon them. And then this extraordinary day happened. It said, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. We know that they'd been together to pray for the purpose of prayer. And it says, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, as a spirit, gave them utterance. This has been described as the birth of the church. When the promised spirit fell upon God's people. The day of Pentecost, as it unfolded, became an extraordinary day in which God brought into that small gathering of 120 people many thousands of souls who then recognized this is, this is the work of God. And the church began to blow up and, and, to, and to blossom overnight and then at the end of that chapter Acts 2:42 Luke describes what it felt like to be in the church. He says, "And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common." an extraordinarily important passage, informing for many what is the image of what the church is and can be when God's working among us, but has been very important for me and precious for me personally. And for those of you who've been part of Grace since the start, I know that not many of you have, but for those who have, you'll know that I have returned to this passage on numerous occasions to cast before us as a church something of a vision of what it is that we pursue. I preached a series of about six messages on it, just breaking it down into its parts. And if you want to know something of the heartbeat of what it is that we long for as elders, that the church will be and become, that series, Radical Devotion, is a good articulation, I think, of something of the life of the church. And you can go back and listen to that. But why is it that this particular passage so encapsulates... The kind of life that we want as God's people. And the answer is that it is, in many ways, the coming together of two vital dynamics in the life of the church. The first is the work of the Spirit. The primary thing is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, moving on God's people, those tongues of fire, and them being filled with the Holy Spirit. And as you know, it followed Pentecost... And the work of the Spirit is not primarily about the miraculous and the so-called supernatural elements. It is primarily about the life of God in the people of God, doing what he always intended, forming a people who love and worship him, the Spirit moving. But the second element that you see going on in Acts chapter 2, and particularly in these verses, is the way that God's people are responsive to the work of the Spirit. Now, I I mention that because I believe that the Spirit can move upon God's people, and God's people can resist Him. We resist Him actively when we ignore the work of the Spirit and, and walk away from God and into sin. But we resist Him passively when the Spirit is seeking to accomplish something among His people, as He always is, and we do not move with the work of the Spirit. When we're not, as Paul puts it, keeping in step with the Spirit. God is looking for people whose hearts are set upon him and who are responsive to him, who, as it were, have their kind of sails up and ready to catch the wind of the Holy Spirit. And so you see this coming together of these two things the work of the Holy Spirit and then the response of God's people. And you see the response of God's people, particularly in the way Luke expresses it here, in how he opens this passage. He says, They devoted themselves to. The language of devotion is crucial. And I think it really captures for us what it is that God wants from us. It's not so much, by the way, individual devotion to God, as important as that is. But he's not thinking here about personal piety. Personal piety is a wonderful and a good thing. God wants godly individuals in churches. But Luke wasn't observing here the fact that in the church there was a smattering of godly individuals. And that's so often the case, isn't it? That within churches you have a broad spectrum of kind of people's spiritual health. Now what was extraordinary and what was particularly marked was that it was the entire church captured and captivated by the work of God in a way that seems to be as one, together, corporate. This is, this is nothing short of the reviving power of God at work in his people. I want to therefore give you a rapid overview of the work of the Spirit among His people and the things that, the marks. What is it that you see happening among God's people when His Spirit is bringing about this kind of spiritual life? That's the question we're asking. And with it, I also want to help you see how every one of these marks, and I'm going to highlight eight of them, every one of them is enhanced and made possible by the physical gathering of being God's people together as a community and as a church, a gathering. What are these things? What is the mark of the Spirit-filled church then? What are the marks of the Spirit-filled church here that Luke points to? And I'll show you eight things. The first is this. The Spirit creates devotion to the apostolic teaching. Luke tells us that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What does he mean here? He does, of course, mean that they were listening to the preaching, but I don't think that what he's describing here is just something that was available for them in the first century when the apostles were alive. The apostolic teaching is what they were devoted to rather than just the apostles. And the apostolic teaching is, of course, what has, is captured for us in the pages of the New Testament. Under the providence of God, God made it such that the apostles wrote down the teachings and the doctrines that are, rest- are, are maintained for us in the New Testament across the centuries. They were devoted to God's word as it was preached by the apostles and is now recorded for us in the gospels and in the letters and so on of the new testament now what does this devotion to this teaching look like friends it looks something like this it looks like the spirit of God awakening within your heart an appetite to know him through his word and not just to know him in a way that is just about an intellectual knowledge, but to be responsive to the word of God. So the word of God that is described as a living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, does its work in your heart, and you are moving with the work of God as the word of God shapes you and transforms you and forms you into a person who's more like a Jesus. The extraordinary thing was, look, I know as a preacher that on any given Sunday as I preach... Some people are provoked and changed by the Word of God there on the spot. Others are unmoved. And what was extraordinary here among God's people was that together as one, Luke says, they were devoted to the apostolic teaching. Everyone was hungry. And everyone was feasting on the Word of God together as God's people. Now, I want to underline for you, by the way, just what a work of the Spirit this is. Very often... We wrongly make a dichotomy between the the work of the Holy Spirit and the centrality of the Word of God. And so we think of Christians as being either spirit people or word people. And we think of some Christians as being more about the passions and emotions of the work of the Spirit among us. And you can go to certain churches where it's all fire, but perhaps little substance. And others of us are all word people. There's a coldness and a formality, but there's no fire The Bible never separates these things. There's an extraordinary verse in in Psalm 33. And remember, Hebrew poetry, by the way, uses a a technique called parallelism, where the, the poet would say something in one line and then say the same thing in a second line, but using different words. And this is how Hebrew poetry works. And this is what he says. He says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath, ruach, or spirit, of his mouth, or their host. This is word and spirit partnered together because what is words? Words are breath out of your mouth, spirit out of your mouth, as the, as the Hebrew would have it. The Ruach of God. As God speaks his word, his spirit accompanies his word. And so when you see the spirit of God upon a people, as we do in Acts chapter 2, There is an appetite for the Word of God so that the Spirit of God brings about a hunger to know God and His Word and to obey Him. I also want to add, by the way, on this, that this assumes the centrality of preaching within the life of the church. I know and I'm grateful for the fact that there are other means by which Christians can grow. We can grow through... um, fellowship and through reading of good books and through tuning into helpful um, podcasts and videos online and so on but there is an irreplaceable dynamic in the new testament what happens when God's people gather together in a room and the word of God is declared and every one of us including the preacher sits under the word of God as it begins to form and transform us in a powerful way so that we're changed there and then In Paul's last letter to, well, last letter that he seems to have written, the last one that we have, is his second letter to his disciple Timothy, who was a pastor himself. And in the last chapter of his last letter, you can understand, of course, that this chapter in some ways just articulates some of his closing desires and passions for this young man who was his kind of protege. He opens that chapter in 2 Timothy chapter 4 in this way. He says, I charge you. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Anyone who reads those words needs to sit up and take note. What is so important that Paul charges him by the presence of God, by the kingdom and so on. He says this to Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So here we are decades after Pentecost. And the method by which God forms his people is still the spirit at work through the word of God. Here it's Timothy preaching to the Ephesian church. And Paul also adds there a warning, by the way. He says, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, it's a provocative image, isn't it? Itching ears, just ready, seeking satisfaction. He says they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. If that was true then, I suspect that the danger of that is much more radically acute today when it is not only um, that we have the same inclination to have itching ears to find teaching that suits us, but also now we have the availability that you can tune into just anything. And this is one of the great dangers of the disintegration of church from being a gathering to being people at their homes tuning in via screens is that it's just too easy to switch off one screen and switch off on another, right? But there's something about what happens when God's people gather as one and the Word of God is is opened up. This is what the Spirit creates, an appetite for it and a responsiveness in the the people of God. And my invitation, my summons to us as a church is let's devote ourselves to this afresh. They were devoted to the apostolic teaching. That's the first thing. The second is this. The Spirit creates devotion to the fellowship. He says it, doesn't he? He says they were, <clears throat> and just there in Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Now what is this word, the fellowship? It's not just friendship. Friendship is important. I think friendship is crucial and vital. And it's not even just community. I think community is an aspect of it, but community doesn't really capture What this word fellowship means in the Bible is something more than that, and richer than that, and more textured than that. It has to do more with the participation of every individual together in what God is doing. They're kind of walking alongside one another purposefully. This word, it's the Greek word koinonia. This word fellowship is extraordinarily important in the New Testament, not only here, but elsewhere. A couple of facets to it are really vital. One is that it does speak of the intimacy that comes within the family of God when we're enjoying this spirit birth fellowship. I can think here of a passage like 1 John, uh, chapter 1, where John says that that which we've seen and heard, he's talking about Jesus here, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, what he's saying is this. When people hear the gospel, they begin to believe it and they're knitted into the fellowship of the church and they experience fellowship with God. And it's this kind of intimacy of knowledge and love and relationship that takes place within the church, but also an intimacy with God himself. But it's more than just intimacy. Elsewhere, another place where this word is used is in Philippians chapter 1, where Paul says this about the Philippian church. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. And what's he so happy about within that Philippian church? He says this, because of your fellowship, it's here translated partnership, but your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now this is why I think this word is much deeper than just friendship and relationships. It's more like active participation. So that if you were to look at the church, as Luke's describing in Acts chapter 2, there was not an individual among them who was disengaged with the life of the church. There was no passive person among them. They were all leaning in, is the modern phrase, isn't it? But they were all engaged and here, what Paul's describing is this fellowship in the gospel is something more like purpose and mission. So it's the direction of the church that gives us fellowship. It's the fact that we're moving together in the mission of God that gives us fellowship. Now, I think this is really captured well by the first of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Do you remember the title of that book, The Fellowship of the Ring? You'll indulge me for bringing in another Lord of the Rings illustration. <laughs> it's been a while since I have, right? But um, what is the Fellowship of the Ring? It's one wizard, two men, an elf, a dwarf, and four hobbits. In other words, a mishmash that don't belong together, but they were bound together by their common mission to destroy the ring. This is something like, I think, I think when Tolkien wrote this, he was seeking to capture something of what the church is about. The fellowship that we enjoy as Christians is not just relationships and intimacy and friendship and hanging out and all that, but it's the fact that we move together. There is not one among us who is passive and on a back seat. Everyone understands their place within God's people and what they are here for. This is something that only the Holy Spirit can create. Do you remember that prayer? We used to say it in assembly every day at school. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit at work among us, binding us horizontally to one another, but also to God. The fellowship is God's life among us in this way. Again, this is not something that I think can happen among a church that is fragmented and only gathering online. One thing, though there's been so much that's been sad about this year, there is at least one unintended benefit is that it has forever killed the delusion that online church is even a possibility. God's people are a gathered people. And the fellowship that we enjoy is when we are together with God in his purposes. This brings me to the third thing. They were devoted not only to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. They were also devoted to the gospel. Now again, this is a work of the Holy Spirit among them. What is the Holy Spirit given to us To accomplish in us, one of the main roles, the chief roles of the Holy Spirit is that He wants to exalt the Son of God in our hearts. This is what Jesus said about the work of the Spirit when He told His disciples that the Spirit is going to come upon you. He said, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So when Christ has gone and ascended to heaven, he's no longer with us physically. He says, the Spirit will come upon you in order to bring glory to me. In other words, when the Spirit of God is upon his people, we become obsessed with, delighting in, in love with the Son of God. Spirit people will always be Christ-obsessed, gospel-centered people. Spirit people aren't just going to be those who are marked by passion and exuberance and life and devotion and love. But it is all of those things directed at the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I think this is so vital for us to understand. How do we keep Christ at center? What does Luke tell us here? It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread. Which, of course, what does this mean? It's communion, the Lord's Supper. So you ask the question, how does Christ want us to keep him central within the life of our gathering? And the answer is that every time we gather, we celebrate the gospel that has bound us to each other and reconciled us to the Father. When we eat the bread, we drink the wine, and we recognize the atoning blood of Christ that has made us clean. I find it surprising, by the way, Here we are, this is just weeks after the cross and the resurrection has taken place. And the early church starts as it means to go on. Even then, when the cross is fresh in their minds, they begin this devoted act of taking communion every time they gather, breaking the bread together, because they never want to lose the centrality of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. It's not only the center of history, it's the center of our hope, and our relationship with the Father. The Spirit accomplishes this. There is no such work, no such thing as a work of the Spirit that isn't full of exaltation and reveling in the glory of Jesus Christ. And friends, once again, this is not something that we can enjoy when we're fragmented. And really, I'm saying these not for the good of you who are in this room, but mainly for the good of you who are watching from home. We are called to be devoted to this. Communion is only possible when we are together in a room. When we break the bread as one. The Spirit creates this devotion to the gospel. Then he creates a devotion to prayer. He says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And I only want to briefly mention this, but just to say... Real prayer among God's people is always a work of the Holy Spirit among us and a mark that his life is among us. If I can state this negatively, without the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts, prayer becomes impossible. You can form the words, you can enact the act itself, but it will be devoid of faith in your heart, it will be devoid of the desire, the way you long for the things of God. And you will also lack the discipline. But when the Holy Spirit begins to move within individuals and with churches, those people become a praying people. It is, an, it is an unmistakable mark that God is moving within a church when his people start to pray together. The Bible shows us again and again how the Spirit births prayer within his people. The book of Acts being the most extraordinary examples of that. Doesn't Paul also tell us that the Spirit prays for us with groanings too deep for words? It's saying that when the Spirit is in an individual, even your groanings begin to be Spirit-formed prayers. You can be on your knees in your room or within the, with the people of God in a prayer meeting, and you just feel, oh, you want to groan desire towards God, and that's a Spirit-birth prayer. We can't pray unless the Spirit of God is on us. We had a precious time just this last Wednesday when we gathered for our upper room gathering, our prayer meeting. I long for the day when, partly because the restrictions are lifted, but also when the desire is there within our people, that it's not just a quarter of our church who gather for that, but all of us. The desperation, the longing. That will be a mark that the Spirit is at work. I could tell you the stories of revivals that have taken place that always began with a few who prayed. The Spirit starts that move that He intends to accomplish when He starts us praying. And then He follows it up with His action. The Spirit also then creates a fifth thing which is awe. Luke tells us in the next verse, he says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now immediately, when you read this, you might fixate upon the miracles and think the people were in awe because miracles were taking place. But that's not what Luke says. Luke tells us, I think, rather, that the Spirit was there creating awe. The Spirit was also creating miracles. In a sense, the miracle is not unimportant, but were incidental. What is important here is the life of God in the sense of awe that the people were experiencing. Now, what is awe? The literal translation is fear. Phobos, it's this Greek word for fear. Awe came upon every soul. No one came into the assembly of God's people casual, unprepared. Unexpectant, cold-hearted. But when they gathered, everyone felt the presence of God and the fear of God among them. I think this is a critical evidence when God is at work in a church. This fear of God. I say that because I think sometimes we think of a work of the Spirit as something that brings just joy and life and liberty, which He does. But doesn't He also bring a sense of the might and the transcendence and the holiness of a living God to us? And out of that fear that the Spirit inculcates within within the hearts of His people, there's a longing for holiness. So the book of Ecclesiastes ends with this. He says, This is the sum of it all. He says, fear God and obey his commandments. In other words, when we experience the fear of God, when the Spirit is upon us, we long to obey God, and sin begins to shrivel in our desire. And along with that is also a a passionate worship. The fear of God is associated in the Bible with deep, longing-filled, passionate, joyful worship. I think, for example, of Psalm 47 Where he says, clap your hands all people, shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the most high, is to be feared a great king over all the earth. When the spirit of God is at work on a people, they're no longer formal and cold and dry. Their hearts begin to experience something of the awe. God is among us. And then the worship is not dutiful, nor is it superficial. It's alive. It's alive with the fear of God and the awareness that he is here. Again, this is a corporate experience. This is not something that is likely to be experienced from the comfort of your bedroom or living room, though God may be gracious to do that in your life but it is something that happens when the people of God gather in his name as one. I want to add to this a sixth element, which is this love that we see. He says that all, in verse 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this has confused many people over the years, this verse, because it looks on the face of it like some kind of communism, doesn't it? Is it that? The answer is no, it's not some kind of proto-communism, partly because they still had possessions, they had houses and such in which they met. And secondly, because this was not compelled by any ruling from above, but it was spontaneous as the work of God worked in their hearts and they longed to meet one another's, need, one another's needs in this practical and tangible way now in other words if you ask what is it i think the word that captures it is just family as a father within a family i do not want to see anyone within my family in need no one having less And the same thing begins to happen among God's people when you begin to find yourself bound to one another in the fellowship of God's church by the work of the Spirit. You begin to see one another as kin, as brothers and sisters, so that even it touches your very possessions as well as so many other things, and you begin to think, what's mine is yours. Now, there's much that we could say about this, but I just want you to understand this is an irreplaceable work of the Holy Spirit among God's people. The fruit of the Spirit, as Paul lists them in Galatians 5, begins with love. It's love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You can prove that God's at work among our people when they start to love each other. And I would also say, look, it's only possible when we are truly involved in one another's lives. If I can put that negatively, it means this. That when individuals stand aloof to the church, disconnected and disengaged and non-committed, they lose out in a couple of significant ways. One is that you find that your needs are not met. And this becomes especially important when you go through moments of darkness and suffering in your life. The fact that you extracted yourself from the family of God means that when you need them, that they're, they're very often you're not, you find that you're isolated and cut off. But perhaps even more important than that is the fact that when someone stands aloof from the, the family of God, the way in which you can minister to the, the needs of others is prevented and impossible. I think we could even go so far as to say this is something like a sin of omission. That by distancing yourself from the family of God, you're withholding the gift that you uniquely can bring to be a blessing to others within the church. Sometimes those gifts are the more formal things, like functions and roles of service within the family. But very often, and more often, I would say, it's the informal things. The ways in which your presence among God's people makes a difference to the individuals with whom you come into contact. And how does this happen? It's not primarily through the ministries of the church, the organizations and structures, and leadership of leaders. It primarily happens through the grassroots organic life of a church family. The more that we are in contact with one another in deep intimacy and fellowship, the more you discover this kind of thing like Luke is describing, where no one is in need among us because our emotional needs and our relational needs and our physical needs and all other needs are met by the fact that we share life together. There's a serendipity to it. An uncommanded work of the Spirit among us. In which I don't have to tell you how to help one another. It comes from your own heart. As you brush shoulders with others and you see there's a need here I can meet. There's a person I can love. And need I stress again, friends. That this does not exist when the church of God loses its emphasis upon being together as a people. But when we are together, suddenly out of that bird, there's this blossoming experience of the life of God so that there is none needy among us. Don't we long for that? This brings us to the seventh mark, which is joy. He says that day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. In other words, the mark that you see among them is that they were happy. I might surprise you because what I've been stressing up to now is the fear of God, right? This awe-filled sense of the fear of God. You might think that seems to me to be almost contradictory to the happiness that I'm now describing. Like God's people will be so intense that the last thing you expect is happiness. But that's not true at all. When the fear of God settles in our hearts and we sense his presence... Our joy is intensified. We experience joy in a way that we never knew was possible. There's a happiness among God's people, a lightness of spirit that is accompanied with awe-filled worship. Friends, I believe that this is something we urgently want to foster and recover and ask God for. Someone showed me this week some of the statistics of the, the way in which depression and depressive symptoms have been exponentially on the rise this year. And you feel grief for so many whose lives have been darkened by the experience of separation from others in lockdown. And the tragedy that is. The church of God is part of the answer. And the answer is only possible when we are together as one people. Breaking bread, worshipping in the temple, he says, and breaking bread in their homes. So as we are permitted, I want to encourage us as a church to run wholeheartedly at the opportunities we have to be together. Recognizing that this is not just an optional element within the Christian life, it's the very evidence that the Spirit is at work among us. And it's filled with this life and this joy, these glad and generous hearts that he describes. This brings me to the last thing. The Spirit, in creating all these things, this devotion to teaching, to fellowship, to the gospel, to prayers, to awe, to love, to joy, the last thing that the Spirit creates is growth. There's one pastor who puts it vividly when he says, Healthy things grow. And what we're describing here is the health of the church, that then automatically it begins to grow. Why do churches wither and die? Well, it's because they become cold and formal. Or because they become wooden and harsh with religiosity. Or because the members of a church become selfish and individualistic, uninterested in one another's lives. Or because we become hypocrites. And our lives are marked by a kind of nominalism where we wear the name of Jesus externally, but actually our lives tell a different story. And when this begins to mark the life of a church, that church is dying. But the early church, what you see here when the Spirit breathes upon his people, you see the life of God. And when they are full of the life of God, the church, it says, Luke tells us, in the last verse it said, the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Friends, my deepest desire for us as we move forward in the months to come is not just that we might recover something of the life that we had looking back to March last year, but that we would surpass it. That perhaps we've seen for the first time, the irreplaceable reality of the church within our spiritual lives, and we're now newly devoted to it as God's answer. Perhaps we've been sickened by the ways in which our own lives have wandered and gone astray without the fellowship, how our passions cool, how we wander off into sins and develop bad habits that destroy us. We're sickened by these things, how we lose faith in the joy of God and our outlook gets darkened and, and uh, we become morose and lacking that kind of hope that marks the people of God. And you think, I want to rebel against that. I want to react against that. I want to react against that Western individualism that is destructive to human personhood and flourishing and is far from the plan and the work of God. And I want to run wholeheartedly to God's answer, which is that we be, as Paul puts it, one new man in Christ, bound together in love and fellowship, an extraordinary mishmash like the fellowship of the ring of people from all different races and backgrounds and classes and careers and wealth and all these kinds of things, thrown together into a common fellowship in which the Spirit of God is tangibly present among us. And what happens when the people are devoted to, to these things? The Lord adds to their number. Growth isn't really the goal or the, the focus. The focus is the devotion to Christ. But with it, there comes this addition as more and more people recognize there is something unique about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are no clubs or societies or organizations or movements or charities that can possibly replace what God is accomplishing in and through his people. And it's a summons, therefore, to every one of you. Every one of you. I want to, as I close, just mention, maybe perhaps you're not a Christian. And maybe what I've been describing today is something that resonates in you. You think, I want that. I want to be part of something like that. I only want to tell you, friend, That the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the message by which we believe we are saved, is not just about you experiencing his life personally in which you know that your eternal future is secure. It is that. But it's also the fact that it then binds you into the church of God. It's the opposite of what is dominant in our culture in terms of this individualism. It's experiencing God's family as you become one with other people who love Christ. And the invitation to become a Christian is not just the invitation to put your faith in Him that you'll be saved, it's also the invitation to be added to His church. So join. Repent of your sin. Turn to Christ and be added to His church. But I also want to challenge you who are Christians. Are you committed to this vision with all of your heart? Are you praying for it? Are you exerting yourself in the pursuit of this kind of church life and spirit life? Are you responsive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit in your own life that you would be a participant and not a passenger? If it has not been true of you, then friend, I want to encourage you today to have dealings with the Lord. But perhaps you say, this is my heart's desire, this is what I want to exert myself for. Then let that turn to prayer now. And let's bow our heads, shall we, and ask God to do a work among us. I want to invite Jocelyn and the musicians to come to lead us in a response of worship. I also just want to say, by the way, that the live stream will come to an end during the song. But friends, before we worship together, why don't we pray that God is going to rekindle this life and do this work among us. Oh Lord and Father, we thank you that when the Holy Spirit breathed upon that first church, that what they experienced among the many thousands of them who were gathered was a sweetness and an intimacy and a life of God that was extraordinarily attractive to a watching world and life-giving to every person drawn into your kingdom and your family. My prayer for us, Lord, is that we will not simply aim to return to where we were before the events of this year wreaked havoc upon church life, but, Lord, that we will move beyond that in the passionate pursuit of church life as you intended it to be. I pray, Father, that you will rekindle desire and devotion among us. I pray, Lord, that you will let every person here find their place within this church family. Not only relating to you personally and individually, as important as that is, but knowing what it is to experience the fellowship that we enjoy together. May we be marked by the authentic work of your spirit, not by some pale, lifeless imitation, not by some hype machine, but by the authentic work of God. I ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen.